take your Bibles and go to 1 Timothy chapter 2. It says, I urge you then, first of all, that requests, prayers, intercessions, and thanksgiving be made for everyone, for kings and for all in authority, all those in authority, that we may live peaceable and quiet lives in all godliness and holiness. This is good and pleases God our Savior. So, God is into us praying for our leaders. We've talked about this idea quite a bit in this fellowship. We talked about it last week, about how we are pilgrims, we're travelers, and we are foreigners in this land. But we are in a land, and that land has a government. And so we are to pray for the rulers, those who are in charge. And the objective of our prayer is that we would lead quiet and peaceable lives in all godliness and honesty, that that there was there would be a culture for that. And more and more, I'm looking around at our culture, and I'm not seeing that. I'm not seeing that at all. Go to Galatians chapter 1. A.J. included this verse in his prayer. It, look in verse 3. It says, Grace and peace to you from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ, who gave himself for our sins, to rescue us from the present evil age, according to the will of our God and Father, to whom be glory forever and ever. Amen. That's our prayer, that God rescues us, continues to rescue us from this present evil age. And we are living in an evil age. There is no doubt about it. Uh, I'm just daily amazed with what I see in this age. Um, I'm not an optimist, and I'm not a pessimist either. I'm a realist, and I think that as believers, we all should be realists. I've got a real problem with Pollyanna Christianity, (laughs) you know, where you'll state a reality and somebody will be quick to rush in and say, oh, it's not so bad. Be careful about that. You know, in the Old Testament, it talks about those who said that there was peace, peace, when there was no peace. And God looked dimly on those people. Certainly, we ought to have a vision of hope, no doubt about it. But as Christians, we, above all people, should see things as they truly are and not as we wish them to be. And I I really want to emphasize that. We should see things as they are and not as we wish them to be. Our country is going through a horribly turbulent time. Go to Psalm 31 and look in verse 17. It said, this is David, let me not be put to shame, O Lord, for I have cried out to you. But let the wicked be put to shame and lie silent in the grave. Let their lying lips be silenced, for with pride and contempt they speak arrogantly against the righteous. How great is your goodness, which you have stored up for those who fear you, which you bestowed in the sight of men 
on those who take refuge in you. In the shelter of your presence, you hide them from the intrigues of men. In your dwelling, you keep them safe from accusing tongues. And we are surrounded by the intrigues of men and the accusing tongues. And we as a country are venturing into the area right now of outright civil war. And if you think I'm blowing this out of proportion, you're just wrong. <clears throat> be not deceived. And we need to be candid about such things. Why? So that we can pray about them. See that? That's why it's important for us to be realists, to see things as God sees them, and to pray about them. You know, I always think about what would it have been like if I was a believer living in Germany during the 1930s, and my ruler was Adolf Hitler. Would I have prayed for him? I should have, right? I mean, we become so partisan in this country. You know, we we think that, well, if, if a Democrat got into office, I'd pray for him. I'm not going to pray for a no-stinking Republican or vice versa. And that's just, that's just not how it works. That's not how it works. So go to Isaiah chapter 1. Isaiah 1. It says, The vision concerning Judah and Jerusalem that Isaiah the son of Amos saw during the reigns of Uzziah, Jotham, Ahaz, and Hezekiah, kings of Judah. And remember I explained in the past that Israel at this point had been divided into two separate kingdoms. You had the northern kingdom, which was still called Israel, and you had the southern kingdom, which consisted of uh, Benjamin and Judah, and that was called Judah. Okay? And so Isaiah is a prophet of the southern kingdom. So it says in verse 2, Hear, O heavens, listen, O earth, for the Lord has spoken. I reared children and brought them up, but they have rebelled against me. The ox knows his master, the donkey his owner's manger, but Israel does not know, my people do not understand. So Yahweh here is likening his people to rebellious teenagers. In verse 4 it says, Ah, sinful nation, a people loaded with guilt, a brood of evildoers, children given to corruption. People, uh, children given to corruption. You know, I was thinking about this when I was putting my teaching together that, you know, it's easy for us to blame our leaders for all our problems, but God doesn't look at it this way. In fact, as we go through this section, you're going to see that God not only blames the leaders, but he also blames the people. God holds both accountable. You know, it's kind of a kind of a real fallen nature of man to go ahead and shift the blame to somebody else. But we are all complicit. We are all complicit. God talks about his people who were given to corruption. And the interesting thing about corruption is, is that evil attracts evil. Wickedness attracts wickedness. Weakness attracts weakness. Sinfulness attracts sinfulness. That what you are is what you attract to yourself. And keep that in mind as we go through that. Uh, this section it says they have forsaken the Lord they have spurned the Holy One of Israel and turned their backs on him why should you be beaten anymore why do you persist in rebellion your whole head is injured your whole heart afflicted now uh, 
I think the King James and the English Standard read better here. It, both of them translate this verse, the whole head is sick and the whole heart is faint. The whole head is sick and the whole heart is faint. And you really see that. You know, the head connotes the leadership and the heart connotes the people. And they are both in bad shape. Verse 6, from the sole of your foot to the top of your head, there is no soundness, but only wounds and welts and open sores, not cleansed or bandaged or soothed with oil. So, so this is an analogy, right, where you're comparing the people of Israel to a human body, and it's a sick human body. I think that this analogy runs true for our culture as well, right? The whole head is sick and the whole heart is faint. And from the bottom of our feet to the top of our heads, there is no soundness. There's no soundness, only welts and open sores. Verse 7, your country is desolate. Your cities are burned with fire. Your fields are being stripped by foreigners right before you, laid waste as when overthrown by strangers. The daughter of Zion is left. The daughter of Zion, by the way, is Jerusalem. The daughter of Zion is left like a shelter in a vineyard, like a hut in a field of melons, like a city under siege. Unless the Lord Almighty had left us some survivors, we would have become like Sodom. We would have been like Gomorrah. Hear the word of the Lord, you rulers of Sodom. It's interesting. He says here that except for this, you know, this remnant, we would be like Sodom and Gomorrah. And then he turns around and calls them God, uh, Sodom and Gomorrah, right? And he says, you rulers of Sodom and you people of Gomorrah. See, the rulers and the people, both are complicit. You see, what we call in this country progressive, you know, that's an interesting term that gets thrown around. Progressive, it connotes progress, right? But in this country, what we call progressive, God calls sin. And that's just the truth. Verse 11, the multitude of your sacrifices, what are they to me, says the Lord? I have more than enough burnt offerings of rams and fat of fattened animals. I have no pleasure in blood of bulls and lambs and goats. Okay, so... Well, wasn't it, wasn't it God who instituted this whole sacrifice thing? Yeah, he did in in the law. But the expectation there was that when people sacrificed to the Lord, they were doing it with the right heart. And God is here is talking about, I am just not thrilled with your ostentatious and elaborate religious displays. You know, these people were basically coming to temple and they were checking a box. They were like, okay, I did my temple thing for the week, you know. And it's interesting, I was just watching a program about, you know, 18th or uh, 19th century England, so that would be the 1800s, and uh, they were discussing openly, now these were supposed to be good Christian folk, but they were discussing openly about, well, you're not of my class, you're of a lower class. And I thought that was interesting, because, you know, if you were a, a real Christian, you'd recognize that Christianity is classless. We don't recognize classes, right? So somebody may be aristocracy. Somebody might be bourgeois. Somebody might be a pauper, right? Those are different classes. 
and in society, we tend to recognize those classes. Now, in America, we don't have a class system per se, but there is kind of an unspoken class system, right? But anyway, so you have these good Christian folks who believed in this ranking, and I thought that was interesting. And these are people who probably went to church every Sunday and checked that box. And we see this in our own society, right? You know, people who go to church, they draw nigh to God with their lips, and they honor them with him with their mouths, but their hearts are far from him. And God looks on the heart. God looks on the heart. Tozer said, I am among those who believe that our Western civilization is on its way to perishing. It has many commendable qualities, most of which it has borrowed from the Christian ethic. But it lacks the element of moral wisdom that would give it permanence. Future historians will record that we of the 20th century had intelligence enough to create a great civilization, but not the moral wisdom to preserve it. How about that? I think that's true. You know, when we talk about Christianity, you're a person of faith, according to identity politics. (laughs) I heard a politician the other day who who, if you look at this person's career, was completely unscrupulous, who would do whatever it took to get more and more power. But this person referred to themselves as a person of faith. I'm a person of faith. And it's just incredible to me, the hypocrisy. It's just amazing. Anyway, so this section that we're reading here has got a real sober tone to it. Some people would say, well, that sounds pretty negative. Well, whatever. Uh, that's one of those things that you have to learn in reading the Bible is it might sound negative to you, but the fact is it's what we call a rebuke, a rebuke. And this section here is a rebuke of a permissive culture. Jerusalem had become extremely permissive. Look at verse 12. It says, when you come and appear before me, Who has asked this of you, this trampling of my courts? Stop bringing meaningless offerings. Your incense is detestable to me. New moons, Sabbaths, convocations. I cannot bear your evil assemblies. Your new moon festivals and your appointed feasts, my soul hates. They have become a burden to me. I am weary of bearing them. Verse 15, when you spread out your hands in prayer, I will hide my eyes from you. Even if you offer many prayers, I will not listen. My hand or your hands are full of blood. Wash and make yourselves clean. How about that? Take your evil deeds out of my sight. Stop doing wrong. Learn to do right. That's what our country needs to do. Seek justice. Encourage the oppressed. Defend the cause of the fatherless. Plead the case of the widow. You know, it's easy to throw some money in the, in the collection plate or, you know, want to give money to a charitable cause. You know, that makes you feel a lot better. That's not what God's talking about. God's saying, go over to the widow's house and take care of the widow. Right? Go over and help the the orphan. One might term this as social justice. Right? Taking care of the oppressed. And that's exactly what it is. It's social justice. <laughs> but it's not the social justice that you hear people talking about these days. And you got to keep in mind that Satan 
will use one principle in order order to defeat another, right? This high-mindedness that people walk around with these days of being social justice warriors, well, good for them, right? They're thinking high-mindedly, but the fact is they do very little for anybody but themselves. You know, I think about the principle of loving thy neighbor as thyself, right? Where all neighbors help one another. And man takes this principle and he uses it to build this colossal, centralized, all-powerful government that's in charge of everything. Do you see that? So you take a righteous principle and you turn it into something that God never intended. Or the sense of equality. Does God favor equality? He does. He wants people to be equal, equal, to have equal access to him, that Jesus Christ is equally one person's Lord as another. We know that we are all equally under sin, uh, that one of us, that none of us is inherently more highly favored before God than anyone else. But man gets hold of this principle and he turns it into what we know as egalitarianism. And egalitarianism means that not only should each of us have the same opportunities, but each of us should have the same outcome, right? So the person who did no work, never went to school, never developed himself, should have the exact same things as somebody else who has. Well, that's not biblical, is it? We refer to that as communism. That's not what the Bible teaches. Anyway, I'll get on with this. Verse 18, come on, let us reason together, says the Lord. Though your sins are like scarlet, they shall be white as snow. Though they are red as crimson, they shall be like wool. And I love that scripture. That's one of my favorite scriptures. Come, let us reason together. See, a lot of times we present God as dictatorial, right? God's up there saying, here's my commandment, follow it. But that's not God, is it? I mean, sometimes there's certainly the rebuke, but uh, God wants to sit down and chat things over with us and explain his point of view. Remember all the time in the Old Testament that God spent elaborating on the differences between the blessings and cursings, right? If you do this, you'll be blessed. If you do this, you will be cursed. Verse 19, if you are willing and obedient, you will eat the best of the land. But if you resist and rebel, you will be devoured by the sword, for the mouth of the Lord has spoken. And my boys will tell you if you ever ask them, right, how many times I've sat down and said, look, we got a simple set of rules here. If you follow those rules, you will be blessed. And if you break those rules, if you're disobedient, there's punishment following. It's pretty simple. And that's exactly how our country ought to be managed, right? A clear set of rules. These are right. This is right behavior, and this is wrong behavior. And if you do the right thing, you get blessed. And if you do the wrong things, you get punished. And it's that clear. And when it is that clear, what happens? It shuts down evil. Evil is not able to thrive. But when you are ambiguous, you have ambiguous rules. It would be just like in your family. If you said, boys, don't do this, and then they do it, and then you do nothing about it. What are they going to think? 
They're going to think the old man is off his rocker. He doesn't know what he's talking about. Or he just likes to say things to hear himself talk. (laughs) But it's clarity. It's moral. It's spiritual clarity. Verse 21. uh, Verse 19. If you uh, Did I read that? Yeah. Verse 21. It says, see how the faithful city has become a harlot. And this is speaking about Jerusalem. Uh, You could apply this to Washington, D.C. if you'd like. It says she was once full of justice. Righteousness used to dwell in her, but now murderers. And, you know, before you stop and say, well, we don't have too many murderers running around Washington, D.C., think about what people do to each other's reputations. They murder each other's reputations. And God, God holds that very seriously. It says, your silver has become dross. Dross is that when you are smelting iron, it's that layer of uh, that, that mass on the top. It's the impurities that rise up to the top, and you scoop it off. It says, your silver has become dross. Your choice wine is diluted with water. Your rulers are rebels, companions of thieves. They all love bribes and chase after gifts. They do not defend the cause of the fatherless. The widow's case does not come before them. How about that? You know, it's one of the amazing things to me how people enter into the Congress and then they retire as millionaires. We all know what they make. So why are they retiring as millionaires? Well, they're getting kickbacks. They're getting bribes. And it's wrong. You know, Ayn Rand, I don't know if you're familiar with her, but she was an author I used to read a lot about. She said, when you see that in order to produce, you must obtain permission from men who produce nothing. When you see that money is flowing from those who deal not in goods, but in favors. When you see that men get richer by graft and by pull than by work. And your laws don't protect you against them, but protect them against you. When you see corruption being rewarded and honesty becoming a self-sacrifice, you may know that your society is doomed. And that's what we see every day in Washington, D.C. And God hates it. He absolutely hates it. Verse 24, Therefore the Lord, the Lord, the Lord Almighty, the Mighty One of Israel declares, Ah, I will get relief from my foes and avenge myself on my enemies. I will turn my hand against you. I will thoroughly purge away your dross and remove all your impurities. I will restore your judges as in the days of old and your counselors as at the beginning. Afterwards, you will be called the city of righteousness, the faithful city. And that's my prayer to God, is that God would make Washington, D.C. the city of righteousness, the faithful city. And it's not now. You know, we get all caught up in our ridiculous politics, our partisan politics, and we forget what God wants. You know, um, God referred refers in the Old Testament uh, to the Jewish rulers as the shepherds of Israel. And you don't have to turn there, but in Jeremiah 23, it says, Woe unto the shepherds who are destroying and scattering the sheep of my pasture, declares the Lord. Therefore, this is what the Lord, the God of Israel, says to the shepherds who tend my people. Because you have scattered my flock and driven them away and have not bestowed care upon them, I will bestow punishment on you for the evil that you have done. 
I will uh, myself gather the remnants of my flock out of all the countries that I have driven them and will bring them back to their pasture where they will be fruitful and increase in number. And I will place shepherds over them who will tend to them and they will no longer be afraid or terrified, nor will any be missing. So that's what God is concerned about. He's concerned that we have rulers and leaders in this country who take care of their people. And they're not doing it. They are not doing it. Look at verse 27. Zion it will be redeemed with justice. Her penitent ones will be righteous. But rebels and sinners will both be broken. And those who forsake the Lord will perish. You will be ashamed when the sacred oaks in which you have delighted You will be disgraced because of the gardens that you have chosen. You will be like an oak with fading leaves, like a garden without water. The mighty men will become tinder, and his work is spark, and both will burn together with no one to quench the fire. Wow, that's pretty ominous sounding, isn't it? But God takes a dim view on politicians who are in it for selfish greed, who are taking bribes, and who are corrupting themselves. Look in chapter 2, verse 1. It says, This is what Isaiah, son of Amos, said concerning Judah and Jerusalem. In the last days, the mountain of the Lord's temple will be established as chief among the mountains. It will be raised up above the hills, and all nations will stream to it. So what is this talking about? Well, this is talking about the last days, that there is a geo, the land, the that Israel is in becomes a gigantic mountain bigger than Mount Everest. Isn't that wild? It, uh, it's gigantic. Jerusalem's sitting at the top. And then all the nations of the world will stream to it. And they'll, they'll be telling each other, you know, let's go see the Lord. And that's what will be happening in the last days. Isn't that cool? You don't hear that too often in church. <laughs> It says in verse 3, many peoples will come and say, come, let us go up to the mountain of the Lord, to the house of the God of Jacob. He will teach us his ways so that we may walk in his paths. The laws, or the law will go out from Zion, the word of the Lord from Jerusalem. Isn't that great? So this is talking millennial kingdom. And this is talking Jesus Christ as the king. Verse 4, he will judge between the nations and will settle disputes for many peoples. And they will beat their swords into plowshares and their spears into pruning hooks. What does that mean? That means no more war. No more war. It says nation will not take up sword against nation, nor will they train for war anymore. Come, O house of Jacob, let us walk in the light of the Lord. You have abandoned your people, the house of Jacob. They are full of superstitions from the east. They practice divinations like the Philistines and clasp hands with the pagans. The superstitions that they're talking about, by the way, are the religions that come from Babylon, the east. Verse 7, their land is full of silver and gold. There is no end to their treasure. Their land is full of horses. There is no end to their chariots. Their land is full of idols. They bow down to the work of their hands, to what their fingers have made. Isn't that something? They look so great. They've got this great army with these horses and chariots. They have all this money. 
They have this appearance of prosperity, but the land is filled with idols. Verse 9, so man will be brought low and mankind humbled. Do not forgive them. Go into the rocks, hide in the ground from the dread of the Lord and the splendor of his majesty. The eyes of the arrogant man will be humbled and the pride of men brought low. The Lord also will be exalted in that day. The Lord Almighty has a day in store for all the proud and the lofty, for all that is exalted, and they will be humbled. For the cedar of Lebanon, tall and lofty, and all the oaks of Bashan, for all the towering mountains, and all the high hills, for every lofty tower and every fortified wall, for every trading ship and every stately vessel. So what are we talking about? Well, we're talking, this is all figurative. And the cedar of Lebanon and the oak of Bashan, they're, they're lofty, right? They represent men of renown, men of greatness, men who think that there's something else. And towering mountains and high hills, those are men too. This is all figurative. And all these men will be brought low in that day. Verse 17. The arrogance of man will be brought low and the pride of men humbled. The Lord also will be exalted in that day and the idols will totally disappear. Men will flee into caves in the rocks and holes in the ground from dread of the Lord and the splendor of his majesty when he arises to shake the earth. So, we're talking here about the wrath, right? The tribulation. In the day, in that day, men will throw away the rodents and bats, their idols and silvers and gold and idols of gold, which they made to worship. They will flee to caverns in the rocks and to the overhanging crags from dread of the Lord and the splendor of his majesty when he rises to shake the earth. Now listen to this. Stop trusting in men who has put a breath in his nostrils. For what account is he? Stop trusting in men who breathe. Because you know what? One of these days, he's not going to breathe anymore. He's mortal. But God is here all the time. And what this is talking about is man thinks he's so great now. This is man's day of judgment, right? But there will come a day when it's God's judgment and all mankind will be forced to reckon with God. Isaiah chapter three, verse one, it says, see now the Lord, the Lord Almighty is about to take from Jerusalem and Judah, both supply and support all supplies of food and all supplies of water. The hero and the warrior, the judge and the prophet, the soothsayer and the elder, the captain of 50 men and the man of rank, the counselor skilled craftsmen and clever enchanter. I will make boys their officials. Mere children will govern them. Isn't that something? So in this retrograde society, it's talking about how God will put children over you. <laughs> and what's notorious, notoriously true about children, they have no wisdom. They're foolish. It says in verse 5, people will oppress each other. Men against man, neighbor against neighbor. The young will rise up against the old, the base against the honorable. 
A man will seize one of his brothers at his father's home and say, You have a cloak. You shall be our leader. Take charge of this heap of ruins. Right? So all the guy has is a cloak, but that's how decimated they are. That this guy has a nice cloak. And they say, You're our ruler. You look the part. But in that day he will cry out, I have no remedy. I have no food or clothing in my house. Do not make me a leader of people. Jerusalem staggers. Judah is falling. Their words and deeds are against the Lord, defying his glorious presence. The look on their faces testifies against them. They parade their sin like Sodom, and they do not hide it. How about that? They parade their sin like Sodom. You know, I think in this verse, every time I see one of these gay parades, and that's what's going on in this country, that they parade their sin like Sodom and they do not hide it. Woe unto them. They have brought disaster upon themselves. Tell the righteous it will be well with them. For they will enjoy the fruit of their deeds. Right? That's not being Pollyannish. That's telling the truth. Look, you righteous people. God will take care of you. God will bless you. But then it says, woe unto the wicked. Disaster is upon them. They will be paid back for what their hands have done. And that's the truth. Youths oppress my people. Women rule over them. Oh, my people, your guides lead you astray. They lead you from the path. How about that? Your guides, your leaders, they lead you astray. They turn you from the path. You know, Jesus warned the disciples about that very same thing, right? That, that the uh, Pharisees were blind leaders of uh, blind guides. Yeah, right. That they were blind leading the blind. They will both fall into a pit. Verse 14, the Lord enters into judgment against the elders and leaders of his people. It is you who have ruined my vineyard. The plunder of the poor is in your house, houses. What do you mean by crushing my people and grinding the faces of the poor, declares the Lord, the God, uh, the Lord Almighty. The Lord said, the women of Zion are haughty, walking about with outstretched necks, flirting with their eyes, tripping along with mincing steps, with ornaments jingling on their ankles. You know, this just talks about how, you know, the women of Zion had lost their their discretion, right? They were no longer discreet and wise women. They became prideful. Verse 17, Therefore, the Lord will bring sores on the head of the women of Zion. The Lord will make their scalps bald. In that day, the Lord will snatch away their finery, the bangles and the headbands and the crescent necklaces, and the earrings and bracelets and veils, the headdresses and ankle chains and sashes, the perfume bottles and charms, the signet rings and nose rings, the fine robbery, or fine robes and the capes and cloaks, the purses and mirrors, the linen garments and tiaras and shawls. Instead of a fragrance, there will be a stench. That's pretty brutal. Instead of a sash, a rope. Instead of well-dressed hair, baldness. Instead of fine clothing, sackcloth. Instead of beauty, branding. Your men will fall by the sword, your warriors in battle. The gates of Zion will lament and mourn. Destitute, 
she will sit on the ground. Isn't that something? It's something. And that's why, you know, we as believers, we just need to see things as they are. I mean, history is a pretty good testimony to what happens to men, men and women in countries when they fail to live according to God's standard. This isn't rocket science, folks. Chapter 4, verse 1. In that day, seven women will take hold of one man and say, We will eat our own full food and provide our own clothes, only let us be called by your name. Take away our disgrace. See, it was a disgrace to be a single woman back in that culture. And so what happened was all the men went off to war and they got all killed. They were all killed. And so seven women would come to one man and say, look, just call us, you know, by your name. Take away our disgrace. I mean, that's a terrible situation. But you think about countries that go to war and waste their their manhood (coughs) on war. Wiped out. Verse 2, in that day the branch of the Lord will be beautiful and glorious, and the fruit of the Lamb will be the pride and glory of the survivors of Israel. Those who are left in Zion will remain in Jerusalem, will be called holy. All those are recorded among the living in Jerusalem. The Lord will wash away the filth of the women of Zion. He will cleanse the bloodstains of Jerusalem by a spirit of judgment, and a spirit of fire. How about that? That there is a reckoning with the Lord. It's a spirit of judgment and a spirit of fire that God will have his last say. So when you look around yourself and you look at the just appalling deceit and treachery in Washington, D.C., just remember that. Then the Lord will create over all of Mount Zion And over all who assemble there, a cloud of smoke by day and a glow of flaming fire by night. Meaning that God will lead over all the glory will be a canopy. It will be a shelter and a shade from the heat of the day and a refuge and a hiding place from the storm and rain. Chapter 5. And I will sing for the one I love a song about his vineyard. I loved one. Or my loved one had a vineyard on a fertile hillside. He dug it up and cleared it of stones and planted it with the choicest vines. He built a watchtower in it and cut out a wine press as well. And then he looked for a crop of good grapes, but it yielded only bad fruit. You know, Jesus picked up this later on in his ministry several times, right? And talked about how, you know, that God had had cultivated this good wine vineyard or this good grape vineyard and that they had failed him. I mean, you see it all through the Gospels. Um, verse three. Now, you dwellers in Jerusalem and men of Judah, judge between me and my vineyard. What more could I have done for my vineyard than I have done for it? When I looked for good grapes, why did they yield only bad? And see, this is a, this is like this idea of a man is known by his fruit. Jesus taught that a tree is known by its fruit. Well, so is a country. A country is known by its fruit too. And at this point in our country's history, there is a lot of bad fruit. Uh, It says, verse 5, Now I will tell you what I am going to do with my vineyard. I will take away its hedge, and it will be destroyed, and I will break down its wall, and it will be trampled. 
I will make it a wasteland, neither pruned nor cultivated, and briars and thorns will grow there. I will command the clouds not to rain on it. The vineyard of the Lord Almighty is the house of Israel, and the men of Judah are the garden of his delight. And he looked for justice, but saw bloodshed, for righteousness, but only cries of distress. Isn't that something? See, God has given us his word. He's given us his spirit. He's given humanity laws, civil laws, uh, and mankind has squandered it. And God is looking. He's looking. Verse 8, woe to you who add house to house. Meaning, you know, what is this? Talking about it's talking about people have become just ridiculously rich. <laughs> Adding house to house. You can think of it as business to business, right? And join field to field till no space is left and you live alone in the land. Meaning you have just cut everybody out of business. The Lord Almighty has declared in my hearing, surely the great houses will become desolate and the fine mansions left without occupants. A ten-acre vineyard will produce only a bath of wine and a homer of seed, only an ephah of grain, meaning you've dominated the market and now you can't sell anything. Woe to those who rise early in the morning to run after their drinks, who stay up late at night till they are inflamed with wine. What is this talking about? It's talking about the indulgence. We see this in our own culture. The indulgence of our culture become very indulgent, right? You know, people grow up and they're all party hounds. Verse 13, therefore my people will go into exile for lack of understanding. Their men of rank will die of hunger and their masses will be parched with thirst. Therefore the grave enlarges its appetite and opens its mouth without limit. Into it will descend their nobles and masses with all their brawlers and revelers. So man will be brought low and mankind humbled and the eyes of the arrogant humbled. But the Lord Almighty will be exalted in his justice and the holy God will show himself holy by his righteousness. You know, if you are preaching the doctrine all the time that God is love, but you never teach this part of it, you are getting just a uh, only a part of God. You're only getting a part of God. God has a very strong justice, and he requires things of mankind. And when mankind fails to live up to it, he's not happy. It says verse 17, Then sheep will graze in their own pasture. Lambs will feed among the ruins of the rich. Woe unto those who draw sin along with cords of deceit and wickedness as with cart ropes. To those who say, Let God hurry. Let him hasten his work so that we may see it. Let it approach. Let the plan of the Holy One of Israel come so that we may know it. Who's the emphasis on here? We, right? So this is mankind exalting himself. Woe to those who call evil good and good evil. How about that? Who put darkness for light and light for darkness. Who put bitter for sweet and sweet for bitter. Woe unto them. Woe unto those who are heroes at drinking wine and champions at mixing drinks, <laughs> who acquit the guilty for a bribe but deny justice to the innocent. Man, I, I tell you, we are seeing this more and more all the time. 
this one fella, uh, I forget his name, but he went and did an undercover documentary of what Planned Parenthood was doing, how they were um, not only, you know, murdering children in the womb, but then they were selling their body parts. And what happened? He went to court. Planned Parenthood got off scot-free, and he got sued. And he has to play, pay this enormous amount of money. I mean, what is wrong? You talk about a failure of justice. It's just incredible to me. Let me read that over again. It says, one of those who are heroes at drinking wine and champions at mixing drink who acquit the guilty for a bribe but deny justice to the innocent. Therefore, as tongues of fire look up straw and as dry grass sinks down in the flames, so their roots will decay and their flowers blown away like dust. For they have rejected the law of the Lord Almighty and spurned the word of the Holy One of Israel. See, you think you're getting away with something when you lie, cheat, steal. You think you're getting away with it, but you're not. Because God sees everything, and he's making notes. You see? Therefore, the Lord's anger burns against his people. His hand is raised, and he strikes them down. The mountains shake, and the dead bodies are like refuse in the streets. Yet for all this, his anger is not turned away, and his hands is still upraised. He lifts up a banner for the distant nations. He whistles for those at the ends of the earth. Now, who is he talking about? It says, they, he, here they come swiftly and speedily. This is the invasion of the Assyrians, right? In this day and time, it was the Assyrians. Verse 27, not one of them grows tired, these Assyrians. Not one of them grows tired or stumbles. Not one slumbers or sleeps. Not a belt will be loosened at the waist, nor a sandal thong is broken. What's this talking about? It means they're on their way, and they're stopping for nothing. Everything is in order, and they are coming, right? Their arrows are sharp. All their bows are strung. Their horses' hoofs seem like flint. Their chariot wheels like a whirlwind. Their roars is like uh, that of a lion. Their roar like young lions. They growl as they seize their prey and carry it off for no one to rescue. In that day, they will roar over it like a roaring sea. And if one looks to the, at the land, he will see darkness and distress. Even the light will be darkened by the clouds. So, anyway, I'm not going to read on anymore. I've, that's probably plenty. Um, but I just wanted to share that with you, that we are a, um, as I said last week in fellowship, that we are a, a separate people, and we, we really need to <clears throat> reinforce that to ourselves. That though we live in this land, we are not of this land. I would fully expect that every one of us would go to the polls and vote. Absolutely. Um, I think it's wrong that Christians tune in, turn on, and drop out of society. That's not at all what I'm talking about. But I will also maintain that Christians need to, above all, recognize God's righteous judgment. That God is a righteous judge and that he is holding these people to account every one of them. And if they are not doing God's will, then we shouldn't be voting for them. Okay? 
Is that clear to everybody now? And and the other point I'll make is that we um you know we have an imperfect group of people. You know there's going to be uh, what what was that proverb that talked about cleaning the oxen's stall? <laughs> it, it says when there is no oxen, the stall is clean. Mm-hmm. But there is there is much benefit to the oxen, right? Well, when we're looking at political leaders, there's a lot of cleaning up that needs to be done. But you have to make a judgment of, you know, weighing the pros and the cons. So, uh, but I, uh, I fully expect, and I, I would charge everybody here. I mean, it's your choice ultimately, but I believe that God wants us to vote and he wants us to be involved in that regard. But he also wants us to, to see ourselves as a separate people and to recognize that, uh, no matter what administration gets in for the next four years, we are still to carry on and do what God and the Lord Jesus Christ want us to do. Does that make sense? And to continue to pray that we lead quiet and peaceable lives in all godliness and honesty, all right? So that's what I wanted to share. Uh, dear Heavenly Father, we thank you for that. We thank you, Father, for that word. Thank you, Father, for your truth, the truth of your scripture. I thank you, Father, that sometimes it's so sobering that it just takes our breath away. But, but Father, we are blessed to be able to know reality on such a harsh level so that we can see through all the foo-foo um, theatrics that we often see about people, that we recognize that mankind is deeply, deeply flawed because of his sin nature. And, Father, we thank you that you work within um, men and women within our government to continue to keep it somewhat righteous. So we thank you for these things in your son's name, Jesus Christ. Amen. Trust I will